This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. They were once called the Chicago Cardinals. Their history goes back to the 19th century and their rivalry with the crosstown Chicago Bears is the oldest rivalry in the NFL and is the subject of our main event. Hello sports fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host Dana Augusta. I'm glad, grateful, and thankful for you taking time out of your day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. Now coming up on this edition of the show, we're going to talk to fellow Sports History Network podcaster Joe Ziemba about his new book, Bears vs. Cardinals, the NFL's Oldest Rivalry. It is the third book that Mr. Ziemba has penned, and we are going to have him on to talk about the very colorful history of that longtime Windy City rivalry. Later in the show, we will have our usual top five moments in sports history for this week of March the 12th through the 18th. Highlighting this week in history includes the formation of a new baseball league, two franchises moved to greener pastures, where actually one of them moved a second time this same week some 30 years later, and an NBA legend makes his announcement that he's coming out of retirement via a two-word fax. And finally, in our shout-out portion of the show, we'll send a solemn shout-out to a pair of NFL legends who we lost this past week. So sit back and pump up the volume because we are going down sports memory lane with the top down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the sports yesteryear. Hosted by Ross Bliley, the Pigskin Tales podcast takes you on a journey through life of pro football stars such as Ernie Nevers, Red Grange, and Fran Tarkenton. Plus, you might not know them real well, but you can hear stories about Bill Brown, Grady Alderman, and Dave Osborne. You can learn more on these players at sportshistorynetwork.com backslash podcasts backslash pigskin tales. Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the main event here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and we have a guest on board with us today. He is a longtime friend of the program, but it's also his very first appearance on the program. So this is something new for us here on Historically Speaking Sports. And the person that we have on today is Mr. Joe Ziemba, who is the author of these, his newest book, which is the Bears versus Cardinals, the NFL's oldest rivalry. Not only that, he is also a member of the of the Sports History Network. He has, his podcast was is When Football Was Football. And Mr. Joe, I'm glad to have you on board today. What's going on with you today? Oh, Dana, it's so generous of you to have me on. I really, really appreciate it. And especially talking with someone like yourself with your incredible background. So uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm behaving myself lately and looking forward to chatting with you. All right. So your book, you have, you have this is actually your third book. And most of it, it deals with football in the great city of Chicago, the Windy City, and mostly about the Cardinals. And this book that you have out now um deals with the NFL's oldest rivalry. Now, a lot of people think that the oldest rivalry in NFL was the Bears versus Packers, which I am one of those people who thought that. (laughs) But, of course, I'm mistaken. And it kind of makes sense to have the Bears and Cardinals as a longtime rival because the Cardinals predate the NFL. And the Bears, you know, was started by Mr. George Hallis, and they're in the same city. So let's talk about, you know, back then, back in the old days, what what was, 
let's talk about the Cardinals first off. Let's talk about that team. They started off in 1898, if I'm not mistaken. Talk more about the early, early, early days of the Cardinals. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. One of the things I found out during my research for these books is, um, this sounds a little egomaniac or something, but (laughs) most of the Cardinals' history is inaccurate. And what I tried to explain in the last book is how those inaccuracies occurred. And one of those is the team actually started in 1899. Not that it makes any bit of difference today. We just know that they've been around since the 1890s. But uh, these little things I tried to adjust in the book. So the Cardinals started in 1899, and it was just a neighborhood street gang or street team. Uh, They played, played prairie football. Uh, they'd find a vacant lot and get together. And the team was called the Morgan Athletic Association. But the one name that we can really point to throughout history is Chris O'Brien. At the time, he was, I think, a 17-year-old halfback with that first team. And he stayed with the team throughout the uh, into the 1920s as the owner of the club and was one of the founders of the NFL. So once we were able to identify Chris O'Brien, and then trace the history back. So, yes, the Cardinals have been around since the 1890s, played under different names after the Morgan Athletic Association. They were called the Morgan Athletic Club, which at that time, every neighborhood had several clubs for young men. I didn't say young men and women because they didn't allow women into these things for some reason at that time. Of course, we're looking at 120-some years ago. And the clubs offered uh, their members... Uh, dancing uh, parties. They offered them football teams, baseball teams, track teams. Boxing was very popular. So Chris O'Brien and his brother Pat, who were the two folks that we can trace as the founders of today's Arizona Cardinals, were part of that club. And then a year later in 1901, we find out where the name the Cardinals came from when the O'Brien brothers helped start the Cardinals Social and Athletic Club in 1901. And that lasted for a few years until the team eventually evolved into the Racine Cardinals. And at the time, teams in Chicago, the neighborhood teams, took the name of the street where the players lived. In this case, Chris O'Brien lived on Racine Avenue on the south side of Chicago and decided to name his team the Racine Cardinals, which is what they were when the NFL was founded in 1920. In fact, you may have heard the story, Dana, but the very first minutes of the league identified the team as the racing Wisconsin Cardinals. And that was never corrected by the NFL in those minutes. And in 1920, O'Brien changed the team to the Chicago Cardinals. So that's where we, uh, a brief synopsis of where the team was for those first 20 years before the league actually started. Now I had a very interesting story about how the Cardinals got their name Cardinals and it has a lot to do with the color of the uniforms or the miscolor of the uniforms, you know, tell, you yeah. know, tell, tell, tell that story because I think it's very interesting how they, how they came up with the name Cardinals. They had a bunch of different names they could have named, but talk about that team. Talk about that, 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 that name Cardinals. Yeah. This is one of the great mysteries that I was determined to solve the last few years. Where did the Cardinals name come from? And if you look at the history on the Pro Football Hall of Fame or even on the Arizona Cardinals themselves, it'll state that the name Cardinals came from Chris O'Brien, the owner of the team in 1901, and that he bought some used football jerseys from the University of Chicago from Amos Alonzo Stagg and said, well, that's not maroon. It looks more like Cardinal Red. So that's the name of the team. Unfortunately, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news again, but the Cardinals name came from just starting taking the name and starting their social club. And Chris O'Brien was never the owner of the team until the 1920s. It was always run as part of a club. And so I had the chance to, uh, as we know more and we learn more and have more access on the Internet, to look at pictures of the University of Chicago uniforms Say, let's go back to 1898 and through 1901, as well as the earliest photos of the Cardinals team. And even though they're in black and white, it'd help if they were in color, uh, the uniforms certainly don't match. And another nice asset that we have as researchers is that Amos Alonzo Stagg kept very meticulous records at the University of Chicago. 
So I was able to jump into there and find out if I can find any record of him selling uniforms and that would have shown up in his financials, which it did not. Not saying it didn't happen, but it's very unlikely for several reasons that Chris O'Brien probably never bought uniforms if he didn't own the team. And Amos Alonzo Stagg, as you probably know, was really against uh, folks playing football after college was over, which is a whole bunch of other great stories that are <laughs> I try and share throughout the book. So the name Cardinals came from the Cardinal Social Athletic Club and not from the name of used uniforms, unfortunately. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you talk about you know, the Cardinals in, in, in those early years, they, they, they primarily throughout most of their history up until they moved to St. Louis in the early 1960s, they played most of their games at Comiskey Park, which is in South yes. Chicago. But they also played a lot of different other places. You had mentioned before that they had played, you know, where they, you know, in different sandlot situations and different, you know, neighborhood fields and that sort of thing. Where were some of the places that the the Cardinals back in those days, in those early years, the pre NFL Cardinals? Where were some of the places where they played? Probably the one that's most identifiable to me is Normal Park was at 61st Street and Racine, just down the block from where Chris O'Brien lived, excuse me. And he had his team headquarters at his home at the time. And Normal Park was built about 1915. I tried really hard to find out who actually was the owner of it, but some of those records are lost to history. But I was able to find out when the place was actually built, which was 1915. And they also played at different little stadiums around Chicago. They played at the predecessor location of Comiskey Park. And they played one year at Soldier Field before they left. But the most unusual stadium for the Cardinals was Wrigley Field, the home of the Chicago Bears. In the 1930s, the Cardinals were already suffering from low attendance. And the owner at the time, a gentleman named Dr. David Jones, had the idea that well, the Bears are doing so much better at Wrigley Field. Maybe we can share the field with them. So he moved the Cardinals, I think it was about 1931, to Wrigley Field, which was a mistake on two fronts. One, the folks that followed the Cardinals certainly were not going to travel up to Wrigley Field to see them play. And that audience they thought they would entertain from the north side of Chicago had the Bears. They were not interested in the Cardinals. They were already big rivals. So they did not attend the games. And unfortunately, left, that left the Cardinals for this all, all during the 1930s with really some poor attendance unless they were playing the Bears. And so no matter where they played the Bears, they had great attendance. But if you look at Normal Park and Comiskey Park and Soldier Field and Wrigley Field, that's predominantly where they played. And one of the unusual stories happened in 1926 when Red Grange and his manager, C.C. Pyle, started their own league when they were unable to get access to a team in the NFL. And they placed a team in Chicago, which gave Chicago three pro teams. And unfortunately for the Cardinals, they leased Comiskey Park away from the Cardinals. The Cardinals delayed that decision a little bit, forcing the Cardinals back in 1926 back to Normal Park with its uh, seating, which eh, may have hit 1,500 to 5,000, depending on standing room. So not what we usually see associated with an NFL team. When, when you, I, I, looking back on this and doing my research, a lot of this I, I, I know off the top of my head, but just from an outsider's perspective, knowing the rivalry sort of, between the Bears and the Cardinals in those early years, especially the early years of the NFL, talking about the 20s, 30s, and 40s, you mainly is basically a battle between the have and the have-nots. You have the Cardinals playing at Wrigley. You have George Hallis. You have a whole lot. You got you know guys like Bronco Nagurski. You got whole legendary names throughout the lore of NFL. And then you have the Cardinals playing on the south side, which is more of a grittier part of town, more of a blue-collar part of town as opposed right. to the Bears playing north side, north Chicago, Wrigley Field, more of a, you know, more of an affluent area of Chicago. Uh, is that is that pretty much an accurate depiction of those two franchises during the more formative years of the National Football League? Yeah, I think it is, Dana, a very good description that, 
And that's one of the reasons the Cardinals thought they, if moving to Wrigley Field, they would attract some of those folks who had the extra cash to come see them play. But a lot of the early Cardinals worked in the uh, city stockyards, which was on the south side of Chicago. Uh, a lot of blue-collar workers. And uh, the first couple of teams were really from the neighborhood, whereas George Hallis, when he came into the league, he went on a nationwide recruiting search and got players from all over the Cardinals were still using guys from the neighborhood or who went to local schools. Uh, one good story was they were trying really hard to get George Gipp uh, from Notre Dame, remember the yeah. Gipper, uh, to play for the team. But unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, but he was friends with a with a gentleman on the south side of Chicago, and they were trying to recruit him that way. So I think it's a very good description of the different neighborhoods and the different markets that both teams had to face especially in the early 1920s. Now, the Cardinals had their championship in 25, and then they added some great players like Duke Slater and Ernie Nevers. They had Patty Driscoll. So they had some Hall of Famers on the squad, but they were unable to uh, repeat that championship for 22 years. And, in fact, they were really not competitive for a lot of, of the years between 25 and 47 for example, in the 1940s, they lost something like 29 straight games, which is still an NFL record wow. for futility in the league. But um, yeah, that was the the neighborhoods were were certainly uh, similar. And, and if you think of the White Sox versus the Cubs today, uh, kind of the same uh, same same discussion about where they're from and where they might be going. I mean, when you look at throughout the like the, the entire sports landscape, and you see when you whenever you have instances of two teams, two franchises within the same city, you see it in baseball with the with the Angels and Dodgers in Los Angeles. You know the aforementioned uh, Cubs and White Sox in Chicago, and then you have uh, the Yankees Mets rivalry in New York, and then you know you don't see it too much in basketball unless you count the Nets and the Knicks. But oh, right. in football, you don't, I mean, you don't, you don't really, in football is different because you play against each other quite a bit. I mean, I'm, I, if I'm, if I'm to remember correctly, the Bears and Cardinals would play, what, twice a year, you know, during those they years. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and what would, what, what would the games be like between those two? I, I could about imagine it being a very heated, I could have imagined it being very emotional games, you know, you know, the, the Cardinals feeling like they're the stepchild to the bears and the bears trying to beat them because they're trying to keep them, make them quote unquote, the junior varsity, so to speak, you know, was that kind of like the case between those two? It was, you know, it, it bordered on humorous at times. Some of the goofy fights they got in. And it's one of the things that I really wanted to focus on in this book is to show when the rivalry got together, no matter what the records were. For example, in the 1950s, the Bears were just needed a win to capture the title, and the Cardinals were hapless at the bottom of the division. The Cardinals beat them uh, to knock the Bears out of contention. They also threw in quite a nice uh, fight between the two teams. And I always enjoyed reading the old newspaper articles and you as a writer would probably appreciate this. The, the fact that the very poetic description of the battles between the teams, uh, the, the descriptions of the combatants and how they danced around and managed one flat fisted punch to the nose of such and such. And this, it's really a lot of fun, but that's what the bears and Cardinals were. And, one of my, my favorite stories is the Cardinals being on the south side where there was a lot of criminal criminal activity in the 1920s. And one of the games with the Bears was interrupted when Patty Driscoll, the favorite halfback of the south siders of the Cardinals, was thrown down and pretty much knocked out by Joey Sterneman and George Hallis of the Bears. And Patty jumped to his feet and started swinging, and he actually knocked out Joey Sterneman. So a brawl ensued with players on both teams getting involved. There's a rumor that uh, the police, I shouldn't say a rumor, the police did come out, uh, some on horseback. And then the crowd joined in the fight. The Southsiders, <laughs> this was played at Comiskey Park. Uh, there was the rumor that I alluded to was George Hallis uh, finding himself face down on the field 
with one of the gentlemanly fans putting a pistol behind his ear uh, to keep <laughs> him quiet, chewing the fisticuffs. Uh, so the crowd that interrupted the game apparently was the El Capone mob. Uh, wow. to Ed Healy of the Bears, who said I had signed, he had signed as the first free agent of the NFL a week before and said, here I am. I agreed to sign for a hundred dollars a game and I'm out here about to lose my life. You had that El Capone mob coming out with guns on to protect their idol, Patty Driscoll. And so <laughs> the fight finally broke up and in his autobiography, George Hellis wrote, yeah, of course we lost the game six to nothing, but everyone had a good time. And I love that. Story. <laughs> but you, that that is pretty much emblematic of Chicago in the twenties, you know, this is the height of prohibition. This is doing the height of Al Capone and, 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 and the, the beer wars that was going on in Chicago were pretty much primarily in the South side. Yes. Um, you know, that was sort of like one of those aspects, one of the, 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 one of the added attractions, I should say, about those, you know, playing ball in the South side of Chicago during the 1920s. It must have been, Filled with "quote unquote" highlights, if you will. <laughs> yes, yes. And I and I think some of the fans went anticipating that a fight would break out during a football game. Right. And there was other examples of the fans uh, getting mad and setting fire to the bleachers. Well, maybe they were cold. Uh, <laughs> but were, you could always count on something unusual. And that even extended into the fifties when two Hall of Famers, Charlie Trippy of the Cardinals. And Ed Sprinkle of the Bears would almost always get in a fight between uh, between themselves during the games in the 50s, early 50s. So it extended that from 1920 when they first played until when the Cardinals left after the uh, 1959 season. There always seemed, in fact, it was a rarity if they didn't have a fight on the field. And part of this might be from the head of the team on down. Uh, in the beginning, uh, it wasn't too bad. It was the players, but... After Charles Bidwell passed away, who, who really engineered the Cardinals' 1947 championship team, he passed away earlier that year. But uh, Walter Wolfner took over the Cardinals, and he and George Hallis did not see eye to eye, and they fought their battles in the newspapers and the teams. Uh, they followed suit and fought their battles on the field, but and it got pretty nasty all the way till the end before the Cardinals left. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about, you know, George Hallis and the owner of the Cardinals and how did the how did the front offices or how did the ownership view the other? You know, cuz you got all of the, a lot of the players, you know, having beef with players on the other side and then you have the ownership going at it between the it must have been that's something that you really don't see in the NFL or really in pro sports anymore. Is not only the, you know, the only case that I could think of you know, not recently, but that, that kind of reminds me of that is the in basketball between the rivalry between the St. Louis Hawks and the, and the Boston Celtics and yeah. Kerner, the owner of the Hawks and uh, Arabak, the own, and the, the, the general coach and general manager of the of the, uh, of the Celtics and, you know, Walter Brown of the of the Celtics. Basically, we are back in current almost got into a actually did get into a fist fight between themselves <laughs> between before a playoff game. So, I mean, <laughs> this, that's something that that and I know in especially in Chicago, the way that Chicago is perceived and and, and, and is pretty much factualized that these two factions, North, North Chicago, South Chicago, going at each other not only between the players and the ownership, that must've been one of the key aspects of that rivalry. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, one, another one of my favorite stories is when Hellas was coaching and he kind of got in the face of M Milan Creighton of uh, the Cardinals was the coach who the papers described at the end of the game, Hellas took off the field with the Cardinals coach right behind him. But, uh, with the, with the beginning, uh, when Charles Bidwell took over in the early 30s for the Cardinals, previously he had actually been an officer for the Bears, so he had to sell his stock in order to become the owner of the Cardinals. And those two guys were friends. And so although there was a rivalry on the field, it was kind of quiet off the field. But from 1947 through 59 is when things really erupted, when the management of both teams were 
not not shy about keeping up the squabble in the local newspapers. And there were several newspapers. So I think maybe the newspaper men kind of goaded them into making comments and they were not afraid to do so. But uh, the ownership, especially after Mr. Bidwell passed away, uh, they did not like each other. And so I think the teams kept up that image on the field. Well, now looking at it from, from my perspective as an outsider, um, I'm trying to, was there ever a time, and I think you probably alluded to this kind of when the Bears had a chance to win the championship and the Cardinals kind of spoiled them. Was there ever a time in the history of this rivalry where both teams were like really, really good and both were powers of the NFL at the same time? There was. In fact, the best example I can give is 1947. In the 1940s were, it was a very unique time for Chicago football. The Cardinals, as I mentioned previously, had lost 29 straight games, most of it during the war. While the Bears, they were really the monsters of the midway back then. They won four titles between in the early 1940s, so four NFL titles. But when the war was over, and Charles Bidwell had been stockpiling his draft choices. He signed the great Charlie Trippy out of Georgia. And the teams uh, entered the last week of the 1947 season with the Cardinals. Whoever won would win the Western Division and would play for the NFL championship. And so the newspaper coverage was fantastic at the time. All the newspapers were covering the teams on a daily basis, which was not only always the case with pro football, but it came down to uh, the last game of the season. And Jimmy Councilman, the coach of the Cardinals, came up with a trick play after studying motion pictures, as they were called, of the, <laughs> of the Bears games. And he decided that if he would align his fastest player, a halfback named Babe Dementiev, uh, that naturally a Bears linebacker who wasn't that quick would have to guard him. So they were trying to make this happen on the very first play of the game, and fortunately, the Cardinals won the toss. Unfortunately, Babe Dementiev's wife gave birth to a baby daughter, and Babe had not been to practice all week in order to practice this trick play. So they kind of outlined it to him uh, on the chalkboard before the game. And on the very first play, Paul Crispin went back, Babe did his fake. The big linebacker tried to stay with him, and he was wide open, and they scored on the first play. And that set the tone as the Cardinals were able to defeat the Bears finally, win that 1947 championship for the division, and then play the Eagles, where they won the title game a couple weeks later, 28-21 uh, to 21 over the Eagles in Comiskey Park in Chicago. But I think that was uh, probably the foremost time when both teams were really, really good and, and met when it really meant something. Now, going to, like, fast forward into, like, 1959, and the Cardinals ended up moving to St. Louis and leaving Chicago behind. Um, overall, what did it mean to the city, you know, if you could tell us, that with the Cardinals leaving, leaving the Bears behind, was there like a certain faction of Chicago Cardinal fans that were upset that they were leaving for St. Louis? There there was. In fact, part of the problem was the Cardinals, even to the morning of the announcement uh, that they were going to move to St. Louis, denied they were leaving. And then had not been a secret that for years, even going back to, say, 1940, when the Cardinals played a regular season game in, in Buffalo that perhaps they were thinking of moving somewhere, but it really never got much emphasis. And, and the team was in Chicago. They weren't drawing well. They signed the lease with soldier field where the bears play today. And the city was going to remodel the field, make it better for the Cardinals. But when the announcement finally came, the, the fans were just distraught and, What's amazing is now, 63 years later, how many people are still mad at the Cardinals for leaving? Of course, they blame George Hallis, which he had a large role in it. But I think uh, people either began to follow, they, and they made the mortal sin of following the Packers instead of the Bears in Chicago. Oh, wow. Um, 
<laughs> Some still follow the Cardinals in Arizona, but this is six decades later that families from generation. I, I, I do a lot of talks about this and, and people will tell me about their family history, how yeah, their great grandfather was a big Cardinals fan. When they moved, they were so upset. Of course, others could probably care less, but you had that, that base of fans who really, really followed the team and, went to their games and just could not believe that the South side was finally going to lose a team, but that's what happened. So yeah, um, there were some upset fans and their family members now are still upset with the team for leaving. <laughs> now talk about, okay. You have this vast knowledge of the Cardinals and the Cardinals history and you being from Chicago. And, and what was the, what was the idea? What, what was the inspiration for you to write this particular book? Oh, yeah. Well, my, I guess it, the same inspiration occurred when I did my first book on the Cardinals, uh, when football was football. And, you know, when you, you have stuff in your house and you move, and I had this box of my dad's stuff. He played football uh, for St. Benedict's College in Kansas. And he never mentioned much about his football career, but he was All-American uh, and then he, I, I knew, but I didn't know that he got drafted by the Cardinals back in the early forties. And I never really looked at his stuff until I moved for about the 45th time. And <laughs> we decided, what, we got to get rid of some of these boxes. And I found this treasure chest of stuff, uh, with my dad's parents collected, including his contract from the Cardinals back in the forties. And his payment as a rookie was $110 a game, but he had to bring his own shoulder pads and cleats. So that was the <laughs> NFL in the forties. But during training camp, he hurt his knee again that he had hurt in college and he was in the hospital and decided, well, I can make more money coaching high school football than I can playing professional football. And that was about where the story ended. And I wanted to find out what really happened to him. And I was able to, uh, locate some articles and magazines that it looks like he actually didn't make the final roster, but then just kind of walked away from it. And the story got a little, little better back in 1997. The Cardinals celebrated the 50th anniversary of their 47 championship team. And Billy Duell, who was an all pro end, uh, introduced myself to him and he described my dad. And I was, I was stunned he said, yeah, he really would have helped us out a lot, but he hurt his knee. I said, how could he remember all these years back to when they were both rookies? But he did. So <laughs> that gave me a little more inspiration that I wanted to find out what happened to him. And as I went through more research, I found out there was really no definitive history of the Cardinals. A book had been written about them. I think it was called The Big Red, which uh, was more about the St. Louis experience. And then as I was finding out some of these possible errors in the history that didn't make sense and... One of those was solved when looking through just tons of microfilm at the Chicago History Museum. I found a, a local neighborhood paper on the south side, which identified this new prairie team, as they call them, called the Morgan Athletic Association, was playing their first game in October of 1899. And so that gave me further inspiration to just really try and recreate the history of the Cardinals, which... Uh, Decided to end it uh, when they moved out of Chicago, apparently. But that that's how it happened. I wanted to find out more about my dad, about the players that played at the time, and what happened with the team. We really didn't know too much. And so, again, I was faced with some of these detours when what is considered established history of the team is inaccurate. And so I was going to find out exactly what happened. So that was it. I'm going to blame my dad and the <laughs> other two books as well. Now, I tell you, I mean, being from Louisiana and learning, I mean, a lot of my friends that I grew up with never even realized that they were once the Chicago Cardinals because it happened. They moved to St. Louis. We knew them as the St. Louis Cardinals and then later the Phoenix Cardinals and the Arizona Cardinals, but never the Chicago Cardinals. And, you know, as I really got into sports history as a teenager, I found, I discovered the Chicago Cardinals and I'm like, oh, they were in Chicago. And I was like, that must have been a natural rivalry between the Bears and the Cardinals. And as I was reading, for the most part, the rivalry between the Bears and the Cardinals, for, for the most part, was like the rivalry between the hammer and the nail. Uh, <laughs> yes. 
Um, but there were, I mean, obviously there were some, I mean, the, the Cardinals winning the 1947 NFL championship, knocking off the bears, you know, to, to get that division title, you know, was one of the highlights. What was, what were some other highlights in this book that you wrote about that is just that, that you found interesting as you develop, as you developed the book, wrote the book and some, some, some really nice nuggets of information that you did not know. Oh, yeah. Let me give a, a couple of them. Um, I'm going to go back to the beginning, 1899, when they were considered a professional team. They they collected money at the end of the game, and they had a young guy in the team who was 16 years old named Hugo Bezdek. And Hugo played with them because his high school team did uh, his high school did not have a football team. Well, he played a couple of years with the professional Cardinals, then went to the University of Chicago where he became an All-American. <laughs> and it was kind of odd, as much as Alon, Amos Alonzo Stagg hated the pros, here he had a guy in his team who played professionally and didn't say a word about it. And, and Bezdek's a great story, too. He's still the only person who has uh, managed a Major League Baseball team and was the head coach of an NFL team. So he was a, a neat early experience. Then finding some of the stuff about the the gangsters in Chicago. There was another story about uh, George Trafton, a big center for the Bears, who liked to drink, was very good at it, and got in a lot of barroom brawls. Now, see, you and I would never do anything like that. And so I look at guys like Trafton and say, whoo, boy, what a talent, a football player and a brawler. And <laughs> he decided to become a professional boxer. And in one of his fights, uh, Red Grange was serving as his manager. And Red Grange, of course, the Hall of Famer, the legendary Hall of Famer, said a gangster came in. Didn't know he's a gangster, but they found out later that it was Machine Gun Jack McGurn from the Capone mob, who was just checking to make sure the fight was on the up and up so they could bet on it. And, mm. and that's kind of stuff you really don't hear too much about. <laughs> I also had a chance back in the uh, early part of the century to check on George Hallis. There's been so much written about him. And... I found out uh, Hallis really didn't play much football until his senior year. He was too little. But we have a, a photo in the book, which I think is the first sports photo of George Hallis playing what's called indoor baseball, which looks a lot like 16-inch uh, softball that's played in the Chicago area, a big old ball. But they played it inside at the time, and he was a, a great pitcher. Didn't do much in terms of playing football at all. Then he went to the University of Illinois and, became a basketball and a baseball star. Again, only played pretty much his senior year. But in the service, he played in the Rose Bowl as part of the Great Lakes Navy football team during World War One. was the MVP of the Rose Bowl back in 1919, and that's where he kind of got his, his football reputation. So stuff like that was, was really neat, and I thought, even the name of the, the Cardinals, we talked about the jerseys, but when the team incorporated, for example, in 1917, again, uh, the name of the team was the Racine Cardinal Pleasure Club, and that certainly doesn't sound like a football team. But, uh, <laughs> Chris O'Brien was involved in that. And I just love the stories, and I won't bore you with all of them, but, for example, Bulldog Turner, the Hall of Fame center for the for the Bears. One of the great one of the great football nicknames too. Oh, Bulldog Turner. Gosh, wasn't it? <laughs> and apparently one night he was sitting on the ledge of a room with some of his teammates. They had a beer or twelve and uh, he leaned back to drink his beer and kind of fell out the window on the second floor. Well apparently he hit the as the story goes, legends of these guys, he uh hit the kind of the awning on top of the first floor and fell to the street, landed on all fours to where a Chicago cop walked up and said, hey, buddy, what's going on here? And Bulldog, who'd had a few grogs or cocktails, said, I don't know. I just got here myself. <laughs> I love those stories. That, that is an awesome story. That is awesome. Now, you have, now, you've written three books. The, I, the, the second book has a very interesting name, Cadets, Cannons, and Legends, The History of the Morgan Park Military Academy. Now, now, now talk about that book, you know, just for a quick second. You know, what's pretty much, what is that book about? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, it's one of those topics where as we get older, we say, oh, I'm going to do something on this topic, but I never did. And that's where I grew up. My dad was 
was a football coach. In fact, that's where the Cardinals training camp was in the forties when he was trying out for the team or signed with the team. And I had heard over the years that there'd been many great players there and they were wonderful teams when I was growing up. And I decided I was going to see if there might be something there to do a book on it. Of course, it would have a very limited market, but those who might like football history and the school has kept all its records going back to 1894 for the football team. And so I was in heaven just going through every year and recreating the schedules and uh, the games and found out that four members from that school are now in the college football hall of fame. And, 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 and so that's pretty amazing that they've had that kind of reputation. The school gave up football, I think, in 1978, so they haven't lost in 45 years. But they're, hmm. they're still ranked with some of the biggest total wins in the history of Illinois football. Uh, so it was, it was kind of a, a very fun research project for me to do. And basically, I got to write about my dad at length, about his teams and meet some of his players. And some of them still stay in touch. Uh, a lot of them are in their, their 70s and 80s. And uh, was just a really fun thing for me to do. So it was kind of a vanity project, but one I wanted to honor my dad again, but also found out so much about high school football back then that instead of taking nice buses or planes, they would take a horse and buggy to go to their, their football games. <laughs> yeah. Now, before I let you go, uh, are there any other um, projects or anything that you have coming up that that, that you want to let all the listeners know about? Oh, thank you very much. Yes. And, and and we're happy and proud to be part of the Sports History Network. We do a couple of programs a, a month on the and on Chicago football. Usually it's the Bears and the Cardinals. Once in a while we'll do a college or a high school team, but it's pretty much the pros where we find an original topic and research for that episode. Uh so it's always kind of fun. Uh, one of the current ones that we've had released is on Charles Bidwell, the owner of the Cardinals, who his first love was women's softball back in the 1940s. So we were able to spend some time on that. Um, also part of the Football Learning Academy. Uh, Ken Crippens uh, started that where yes. uh, proceeds from that effort go to help ex-NFL players. So um starting to get more active on that. So I'm always happy to do that. And if anyone is really bored after hearing all this stuff, um, our Facebook page, simply called Chicago Cardinals, uh, covers a lot of, again, minor topics just from the age of the Cardinals, and it's more specific on the Cardinals. And uh, you can also find it on Twitter as well, to where we have very short things. So uh, I have no life, Dana. I'm just <laughs> football guys. <laughs> Well, you look like you have a lot going on, Mr. Joe. And uh, just to introduce you one more time, Joe Ziemba, the um, podcast host of the you know, When Football with Football, that was the name of his podcast. Also, he has this new book coming out. You have Cardinals, Bears versus Cardinals, the NFL's oldest rivalry. He has a number of other books and another uh, other things going on, but also he's one of the most interesting people that I know and one of the most interesting people here on the Sports History Network. Mr. Joe, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your book. Oh, thanks so much. And uh, it was really an honor and also my pleasure. And thanks for putting up with me as we <laughs> recant and retell some of these long forgotten stories. So Dana, thanks so much and uh, continued best wishes with the wonderful podcast that you have here. Thank you so much. Man, thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that you came on, and um, we'll be right back right after this short break. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one 
for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there that you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And right now it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our episodic Top 5, where we count down the five biggest historic moments in the world of sports history that are celebrating anniversaries and is being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. The college basketball tournaments are here, and whether your team is in the NCAA tournament or the NIT, the best way to show off your school spirit and fandom is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. They have a wide range of styles for your favorite team with what I call old school logos, not, not only to make you stand out in the crowd, but also to show that you are a true fan. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more schools and more styles every day. And on the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen to get 20% off of your next purchase. So give Home Field Apparel a try as you watch your team in the tournament and possibly pull off that major upset. That's Home Field Apparel, where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel, a must-have for the upcoming tournament. And once again, Home Field Apparel, where they are fond of saying, wear one for the team. And this week's episode of the, the Top 5 We'll talk about the major historical events in the world of sports that took place this upcoming, this current week here we have in mid-March. And right now, we, we shall begin with number five. The American League is created. On March 16, 1900, a conglomeration of teams that was part of the Western League became reorganized and called itself the American League. The league was the brainchild of former Western League commissioner and former sports writer Byron Van Johnson. And joined by associates and club owners Connie Mack and Charles Comiskey, Johnson moves to make his league a fellow major league in direct competition with the well-established National League at the turn of the 20th century. By the opening of the 1901 regular baseball season, eight teams were comprised the new league. The teams included Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics, the Detroit Tigers, the Boston Americans, which would be later known as the Red Sox, the Cleveland Blues, who would change their name to the Indians and much later on now the Guardians, the Chicago White Sox, which was owned by the aforementioned Comiskey, the Washington Senators, and then there were the Milwaukee Brewers, which was a Western League team that would later move to St. Louis and change their name to the Browns. Those Browns would stay in St. Louis until 1952, where they would even, even inevitably move to Baltimore and become the Orioles. Speaking of Baltimore, they would have a team there which was also called the Orioles, but would only stay in the league for only two seasons. By the 1903 season opener, they changed their they would move out of Charm City to New York City and changed their name to the New York Highlanders and of course would eventually become the New York Yankees. Number four, the Cincinnati Royals and Chicago Cardinals announced relocation. On March 14, 1972, the Cincinnati Royals, which during their time in the Queen City, featured the likes of Oscar Robertson, Maurice Stokes, Jack Twyman, and Wayne Embry. They announced their intentions to move to Kansas City, Missouri and become the Kansas City Royals. 
yet since the city already had a team called the Kansas City Royals, and to avoid confusion, the Royals would change their name to the Kings. In addition to that, the Kings would split home games between the 8,000-seat Kansas City Memorial Auditorium and the 9,300-seat Omaha Civic Auditorium, hence the new name, the Kansas City Omaha Kings. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? While in Kansas City, the Kings were led by superstar guard Nate Archibald, who was the only person in NBA history to lead the league in scoring and assists in the same season, and he did that during the 1972-73 season. After four shaky seasons, the team would simply become the Kansas City Kings in 1976, when the new Kemper Arena was built. Yet they would still play from time to time in Omaha until 1978, as well as a few times in St. Louis. Meanwhile, speaking of St. Louis, this same week in 1960, the Chicago Cardinals, who were facing financial problems of their own and tired of having to compete with the Crosstown Bears, said goodbye to the Windy City and moved to St. Louis and became the St. Louis Cardinals. On March 13, 1960, the Cardinals made it official and moved to St. Louis and would play in the Gateway City until 1988, where in March of that year, the Cards would move once again, this time to the Valley of the Sun in Phoenix, Arizona. During their time in St. Louis, which lasted 28 seasons, the Cardinals would reach the NFL postseason just four times, having never hosted a playoff game. Yet, despite their dubious postseason history in St. Louis, the Cardinals have a 481 win percentage while in St. Louis, which is actually higher than their win percentage in both Chicago and Arizona. Number 3. The City of Montreal Riots After the Suspension of Maurice Richard In the 1950s, Maurice Richard, star player of the Montreal Canadiens, was looked upon by French Canadians almost as a deity, blessed with divine hockey gifts. Yet with all of his skill, he was a player that was not above throwing down the gloves and having a go. Teams reportedly sent players to provoke him during games by hooking, slashing, and holding him as much as possible. It all came to a head on March the 13th, 1955, when the Canadians were playing the Boston Bruins in Boston. Bruins defenseman Hal Laco high-stick Richard in the head during a power play, and referee Frank Darby signaled a penalty but allowed the play to continue because Montreal had control of the puck. When the play ended, Richard skated up to Laco and hit him in the face and the shoulders with his stick eventually breaking it. A Bruin defenseman, Cliff Thompson, tried to corral Richard, but he broke away and punched tw Thompson twice in the face, knocking him unconscious. Richard was initially given a match penalty and an automatic $100 fine. The incident was so bad, the Boston police wanted to arrest Richard for assault, but his teammates barred the door to the dressing room. National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell called a hearing of the incident on March the 16th. The result? Richard would be suspended for the remainder of the 1955 season and all of the postseason. Montreal fans were outraged, claiming that the suspension was because of his French-Canadian heritage. However, other hockey fans claimed that the suspension was not severe enough because of his savage nature and his reputation of rough play during his career. As a result of the suspension, Richard was denied the league scoring title, something he had never won. The next night, Campbell attended the Canadiens-Detroit Red Wings game at the Montreal Forum. Campbell, who was receiving death threats, stated that he would not back down. Thousands of Montreal fans gathered outside the forum in protest. Midway through the first period, Campbell arrived at the game and was welcomed with loud chorus of boos. Campbell was later assaulted by a fan and then someone in the stands set off a tear gas bomb near the league president and the game was suspended. The angry crowd was leaving the arena, joined the demonstrators outside and then a riot ensued as the rioters chanted in French, down with Campbell. More than 50 stores within a 15 block radius of the forum were looted and vandalized and 12 police officers and 25 civilians were injured during the melee leaving the famed St. Catherine Street in shambles. Number 2. Future Hall of Fame pitcher Cy Young retires. 
Now, there are several records in the minds of sports fans that may never be broken. And in the case of Denton True Young, his wins total, among others, may be one of those that stand for all time. On March 15, 1912, Cy Young announced his retirement from baseball with a record of 511 career wins. Now, to put that into perspective, think about this. 39-year-old Justin Verlander of the New York Mets lead the majors in career wins with 244, less than half of Cy Young. In addition to that, Young finished with 7,356 career innings pitched, 815 career starts, and pitched an unbelievable 749 career complete games. That's like a pitcher pitching a complete game every game for five straight seasons. Young was a member of the Boston Pilgrims that won the very first World Series and pitched three no-hitters and tossed the perfect game on May 5, 1904. He started his career with the Cleveland Spiders in 1890 and played with the Pilgrims, and later, which was later the Red Sox. He returned to Cleveland in 1909 and concluded his career with the Boston Rustlers, which you now know of as right now the, Boston, the Atlanta Braves. He was part of the charter class of the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1939 and was a member of the Major League Baseball's All-Century Team. And the number one moment in sports history that happened this week? Michael Jordan returns to the NBA after a 17-month retirement. It was the facts heard around the world. Back in 1995, there was barely email, no Facebook, no Twitter, or Instagram. Taking advantage of 1990s technology, Michael Jordan announced on March 18, 1995 in a two-word fax that said simply, I'm back, ending his 17-month retirement to return to the Chicago Bulls. In October of 1993, Jordan, right before his Bulls were looking to defend their third consecutive NBA championship, shocked the sports world and announced his retirement claiming that he had nothing left to prove in basketball. Over the next year and a half, Jordan played minor league baseball for the Birmingham Barons, a minor league club in the Chicago White Sox organization. Then, during the stretch run of the 1995 NBA season, Jordan will return to the Chicago Bulls and lead them to the Eastern Conference Finals, ultimately losing to the Orlando Magic. The next season, the Bulls will win an NBA record 72 games and their first of three in a row to conclude his career with the Bulls. The second three-peat of the Bulls in the 90s all began with that simple two-word fax. And that will do it for this week's edition of the Home Field Apparel Top 5. And coming up next, we're going to send a solemn shout-out to a pair of pro football legends. One was the only coach to lead a team to a Super Bowl and an appearance in a Grey Cup and was once a member of the Minneapolis Lakers. The other was the cherished prize receiver out of Prairie View A&M that was signed by a team that literally hid him in an undisclosed hotel room from a rival league just to sign. That's next, right after this short break. We at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the sportshistorynetwork.com slash sponsors page, you'll find Row 1, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. All of these offer great discounts, specifically at Row 1, you can save 15% at the Row 1 Gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 Gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes of wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 Shop also has thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts and long sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. With Royal Retros, they're the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from defunct leagues and other teams in those leagues. From Play Classic Games, it's sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN for 10% off your first order. 
from Thrive Fantasy. It's a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to 100 bucks. And with Mega Seats, they're tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So check them out on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com sponsors page. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash sponsors. The soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of FilmMusic.io. Hello and welcome back to the program. And to conclude this episode, we normally send out a shout out to a historical event or historical person within the vast world of sports and sports history. And unfortunately, in today's episode, we will send a solemn shout out to not one, but two legends in the world of pro football that passed away within a few days of recording this podcast. The first is former Minnesota Vikings head coach Bud Grant who led the Vikings to four Super Bowl appearances in the span of eight seasons and is still the winningest coach in Vikings history. Now, when you think back to Bud Grant in his coaching career with the Vikings, it is important to point out that he didn't establish the team. It only seems he's been there as long the team has. But through and through, he was Minnesota. He attended the University of Minnesota after serving in World War II and was a three-sport star with the Golden Gophers where he played football, basketball, and baseball. Now, did I say he was Minnesota through and through? Well, he began his professional career not in football but in basketball. He played two seasons with the Minneapolis Lakers before going to football where he crossed the border and signed with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers of the Canadian Football League where he would eventually become head coach at the age of 29. In 10 seasons in Canada, he coached the Blue Bombers to six Grey Cup appearances and four championships. By 1967, Grant returned stateside to take care of a talented yet rudderless Minnesota Vikings team. The Vikings, before Grant arrived, was already kind of successful despite being an expansion team. They were not a playoff team, but unlike typical expansion teams, they were very competitive. That talent was evident as the team took off in the late 1960s, and by 1969, the Vikings had catapulted themselves into their first Super Bowl against the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl IV in New Orleans. As time moved and players and coaches came and went through the 70s and early 80s, there was one constant in Minnesota, and that was Bud Grant. Okay, maybe Jim Marshall. But Coach Grant for sure. He retired from coaching in 1985, but stayed connected to his t- to the team all the way to his passing at the age of 95. Now, on January 11th, 1970 in New Orleans, as I mentioned before, was Super Bowl IV. In Coach Grant's first Super Bowl, his Vikings defense had to contend with one of the most dangerous weapons in pro football at the time. Lining up at receiver at receiver for their opponents in that game, Kansas City, was a player named Otis Taylor. The signature play of that Super Bowl in Tulane Stadium was Taylor catching a quick hitch pass from quarterback Lynn Dawson and turning it into a 46-yard touchdown to give the AFL their second Super Bowl victory. To me, the best way to describe Otis Taylor was he was basically the Randy Moss of the 1960s. After starring at Prairie View A&M, Taylor was drafted by the Chiefs in the AFL, but also into the NFL in 1965, thus began one of the legendary signing stories ever. Emblematic of the bidding wars between the two leagues in the 1960s, the Chiefs and the Dallas Cowboys were willing to do almost anything to sign the best college talent. So, as the story goes, the Dallas Cowboys were looking to sign Taylor out of Prairie View and to keep him away from the Chiefs. The Cowboys hid him in a quote-unquote undisclosed location. They hid him in a hotel. The Chiefs had heard about this and sent their lead scout, Lloyd Wells, which was one of the first African-American scouts in pro football, disguised as a photographer for Ebony Magazine, and told Taylor that the Chiefs were ready to sign him to a large contract with a new Ford Thunderbird, which was already parked at the Chiefs' offices. 
Also, to add to the subterfuge, Wells told him, quote, if you don't come with me, I will lose my damn job, unquote. Taylor, to elude his quote-unquote babysitters, slipped out of the window and signed with the Chiefs, and the rest is history. Well, that history was pretty impressive. Along with a Super Bowl ring, Taylor was the first two-time, was a two-time first-team All-Pro in 1971 and in 1972. He was a two-time Pro Bowl selection, All-Star and AFL All-Star MVP in 1966, AFL Championship Game MVP in 1969, and was a member of the Chiefs Hall of Fame. The only thing missing from his resume is a bust in Canton, and I think that may be coming pretty soon. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you get new episodes whenever they're released. And check us out on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 where you could get your daily dose of sports history. And you could also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. And also tell your family. Tell your neighbor, tell a friend, or even tell a passerby on the street about us. It would really, I would really appreciate it and it would really help us out. And until next time, I'm Dana Augusta saying so long.